Hi, and welcome to the Passionistas Project podcast, where we talk with women who are following their passions to inspire you to do the same. We're Amy and Nancy Harrington, and today we're talking with Angela Philp, the founder of Queen of Possible. With a focus on women's leadership and personal transformation coaching, Angela's clients reconnect with their creative energy and accomplish what's really important to them with greater power, joy, and ease than they ever thought possible. So please welcome to the show, Angela Philp. Thank you very much for inviting me onto your show. I am so delighted to be here and have this conversation with you both. We're so excited to have you here. What's the one thing you're most passionate about? Women's leadership. And you, you mentioned it so well in your intro, joy, creativity, and passion. And so my joy, my creativity, and my passion is having women in 50% of leadership positions worldwide within the next 10 years. That's my big mission. And what's really important to that is also having it be with joy, passion, enthusiasm, and creativity. Because I think that if it's just a forcing, it's not going to be worth it. But what we want is for women to be standing in positions of power and standing in their power with all their joy and creativity. Why is this such an important mission to you? It has been an important mission to me since I was young. I didn't voice it like that, though. When I was, you know, when I was young, I used to read all these stories about, you know, women and men at the time of, you know, world leaders. But I was really attracted by the women who'd made a difference. And it just inspired me. And I dreamed of being that woman one day. And so there's that. But also, as I was growing up and with my parents, I sort of was always taught that I could do whatever I wanted. And that's a very white privileged thing to say. And yet I didn't come from a privileged white family. I came from a normal or slightly an underwealthy family. But what was most important was that was learning that for myself. But also when I got to university, I really started studying these things. And then I decided I wanted to work for UNESCO. And I'll do a big jump because what I recognized after working for UNESCO was that in 25 years, I mean, that, that, that organization and many organizations do a lot of great work, but we're still talking about the same topics. And we're still writing education programs so that women, you know, to sensitize men as to why women and girls should be educated. And I don't get it. I don't, I don't even understand how 50% of the whole world's population is not counted as equal. So that, that's why it's so important to me, just because. <laughs> and also, you know, because I, I know what it is to feel like within yourself, you're standing in your own power as a leader. And I, I think the world will be different when we have women in 50% of leadership positions and when they're standing as leaders in their families and not as less than. And when we're standing as leaders in community. And so it's not about having to be at the top echelon of, I mean, that will be included, but I'm talking about all levels, all strata, standing as leaders and equal is vital, I think, to the well-being of the world. You mentioned your childhood. Let's take a step back. Tell us where you grew up and what your childhood was like. I was born in New Zealand in Christchurch, and, which is a gorgeous little city. And I grew up there until I was 11. And my memories of that place are fantastic. It was really funny because when I moved to Australia, I recognized that I needed to get a fashion sense because I had none where I was living in New Zealand. It was <laughs> a 
just, I don't know if it was my parents or me, but, you know, I was quite happy to have a tracksuit on and I, I never really cared what I wore. It didn't matter as long as I wasn't warm or, you know, I wasn't too cold or not warm enough or whatever. And I was a real tomboy and I lived outside and I loved to read. And so I spent, I've always had, you know, friends that I've loved, but I spent a lot of time wandering around the fields and sitting out under trees reading books and drawing and playing with colour and they're my souvenirs of my youngest days and I wasn't so much a doll person as a climbing tree person or a playing with paint or my mother's lipsticks and squashing them up person and then we moved to Australia when I was 11 because the economy was better over there and my mum's twin sister lived there and my whole life changed from that moment and there I became like almost a different person. I learned that I needed to create my life and that that was what life was all about and that if I wanted something that it was up to me to go out and get it, you know, to create what I wanted. And my father and my mum both changed jobs and my dad has done several different jobs in his life. You know, when, when he met my mother, he was a an apprentice butcher and a singer, and that's how they met. And then he got into sales. Somebody asked him if he would be interested in sales, and that was the sort of person, that is the sort of person my dad is, take up an opportunity. And that's what he taught us through just watching him. And so he had all of these books on Think and Grow Rich and You Can Do Anything and I Dare You, and he passed all of that on to me. And I took it from there. So that was what my growing up was like. You know, with it was with horses and I live on a horse farm now still and it was outside and it was all about how to grow your life and lots of creativity. When and why did you decide to leave Australia and move to France? I had told my mother when I was young, apparently, that I would grow up and live in France one day. And I have no memory of that myself, but my mum said that's, that's what I had said. And so I studied French at school, didn't do particularly well at French at school, became an exchange student and all I could say was like chocolat chaud and croissant and, and that's about it. And <laughs> they translated the Stevie Wonder song, you know, I, I just called to say I love you. I knew how to say je t'appelle pour dire and to my parents and uh, my host parents, I called them before I went as an exchange student and then I thought well, I can't say I love you because I don't know them. So I'm like je t'appelle pour dire and that's all I knew. It was like hello. So I learned French. I knew I wanted to move back there and it was as I finished my university studies that I just knew that I wanted to work for UNESCO and they're based in, the headquarters are based in Paris. And for various reasons of which one was a relationship that was a bit violent, I got a one-way ticket to New Zealand to live with my auntie who was this amazing woman, amazing as well, and she was my godmother. And living with her, she was like, right, I've got the book uh, Shakti Gawain's Creative Visualization. And so she said, you need to visualize being at UNESCO. And so I would sit in the bath and write out what it was like to work for UNESCO and how amazing it was being in there and really imagine myself there already and in a place I had no idea what it looked like. And back then we didn't have the internet. So, I mean, I could have got an encyclopedia, but no photos, no nothing. So I'm just amazed imagining this with my fantastic auntie. And that was, it was from there that it was like, right, I have to get there. And I sent CVs and I sent CVs and I sent CVs and they were returned and returned and returned with refusals. And I thought, okay, I just have to get to France. So I was working as a conference manager 
writing conferences on different topics. And I knew that our competition had an office in Paris. So I went and saw them and I said, would you send me to Paris? And they said, yes. And from there, the sort of the rest is history. A, a great friend of mine who lives in Barcelona now introduced me to a, a, a wonderful friend of his that he'd met in San Francisco and we're still friends. And she said, but my boss works at UNESCO. And I went, oh, wow, could I meet her? And so I did. And then that was it. That was my, that was how it all started. For people listening who don't know, tell us what UNESCO is and tell us why you were so focused on working for them. UNESCO is the United Nations Education, Scientific and Cultural Organization. And I knew that they did work on educating women and education you know, I don't know, I don't know why. I haven't looked into why, but education is, or I don't know when it became so important to me. Maybe it was because I loved, I actually loved school and I loved learning. And I homeschooled my own children as well, you know, all of these years later for, for a while before the pandemic. And I really wanted to work with women's education. And I believe that education is vital, a, a, a foundation. And so that was what was so important about me working there as opposed to any other of the great United Nations organisations. And I mean, you know, and, and Paris. <laughs> Paris. <laughs> so tell us about the work that you specifically did at UNESCO. What was your job? When I started, it was analysing the, like, so it was statistical. It was really looking at all of the information that was coming in from the programmes that were in place around the world. And noticing the comments about what was working and what wasn't working and then giving a report back as to what that, you know, what, what I made some recommendations, but of course it was my boss who really made the recommendations. But I, I did the, like, the, the groundwork, the, the pulling apart the numbers and saying this works, this is what the, this many people have said, this is what this many people have said, and these are all of these, you know, this is how many people have said it's not relevant enough or this doesn't work and this is what people have said about this great part or about oh, these reading books here are really pertinent and we need to change this stereotype. And from then on, it moved. I did some work as well writing for my, I had, a, I have, I had a great boss. She's awesome and we're still in contact as well. So sometimes it would be writing articles for her as well on, you know, gender parity and women's education and girls' education. So it was the basic education sector. And from there, it became, you know, working with her, helping her write the programs towards the end. And by that time, I was married with two children. And I had also the idea that I wanted to look after my children. And so I was doing, working on a consultancy basis. So I was like on a six month rotation of contract. And it was like becoming working from nine at night till two in the morning on some of the programs that I had and some of the projects. And I thought, I don't know if this is sustainable over the long term. And for various reasons, including the work that my husband was doing. And I had some illusions about international organizations. And I really thought that, and I do still believe this, that everybody is out to create something amazing in the world and create change. And I became a, di a bit disillusioned watching some of the internal politics and sort of had an inner rejection of it. Back then when I was young and pure and idealistic and, and thought that everybody should get on nicely. And that was, and that was you know, it was quite incredible because my husband as well sold military aircraft. <laughs> and I was coming from New Zealand saying, 
anti-war, anti, you know, anti-war, anti-nuclear, anti-everything. And then I meet, you know, somebody whose father's the head of the World Association of Nuclear Operators and then the next boyfriend's <laughs> selling military aircraft. I'm like, what is this, a test? <laughs> and so anyway, with, with, um, then we moved down to Toulouse after that. So it wasn't possible. I made that choice though. I notice how interesting it is because I'm like feeling disloyal saying something because it was such a big dream of mine and I still and I really believe in how important you know the work is that uh, all of the, uh, the you know the humanitarian organizations do that's that's indiscutable as we say in French but and I recognize now as a 51 year old that there's politics everywhere but back then it really made an impact on me and and it wasn't directed at me it was my outside observation I mean I didn't have a I didn't have a huge position so I wasn't in anyone's way so there was no politics directed at me but it was something that was really I just watched it and I like I fell off I fell off my cloud and so now my job is helping women stand as leaders within situations like that within within situations where there is politics to really stand in their leadership and to reconnect with their joy not keep it when they feel like they've lost their mojo and you know, all of the, 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 human, the human political issues, you know, human dynamics start becoming too much. So it's interesting, the circle background. We're Amy and Nancy Harrington, and you're listening to the Passionistas Project podcast and our interview with Angela Philp. To join other wild spirit leaders to create the next level of your leadership and more deeply impact the world, starting with yourself, visit queenofpossible.com. If you're enjoying this interview and would like to help us to continue creating inspiring content, please consider becoming a patron by visiting thepassionistasproject.com backslash podcast and clicking on the patron button. Even $1 a month can help us continue our mission of inspiring women to follow their passions. Now here's more of our interview with Angela. You moved to Toulouse. So what did you do when you moved there? With three young children, because when we moved, my son, who's now nearly 18, was six months old. I had always dreamed as well of becoming an artist. I'd actually dreamed of becoming an actress as well. I mean, I've dreamed of a lot of things. And I remember when I'd said to my parents that I wanted to be an actress, that they said, oh, my goodness, after, after telling me, you know, you can be anything you like, you can be anything you like, they said, oh, no, don't do that. You will be working in a restaurant for the rest of your life. Like, and I could tell they were like, for my economic security, that wasn't a good thing. It wasn't so much about being any sort of like social level. It was like, you don't want to be doing that. It's hard work. So it's like, get a degree. But I'd also really wanted to do something that was artistic and creative. And so I studied calligraphy for eight years, part-time in the evenings, looked after my kids. And in that time, I was renovating furniture, renovating lights and selling selling those, I sort of like came in, went into a completely creative job and did a little bit of work for ActionAid at the time as well. I think it was writing articles, if I remember rightly, on gender, gender parity. And I loved it. I let my creative juices flow and my creative self live. And I became an artist and I started writing a blog, which is no longer online, called Signed by Ange, and wondered what it would be like to put my voice out there and felt really intimidated and small and like an imposter, as many women can do, and wrote the blog anyway. And it grew and 
Um, I met some of the most amazing people that way. And I, I sold my artwork. And my, my first goal, though, when I did that was actually an idea. When I realised that I wasn't, I thought maybe I'm not cut out for a big organisation. And so I thought what I'd love to do is create a program for women in developing countries that allows them to express themselves. And what I'd known from growing up, you know, with my dad, who was always about the language that you use is what creates your reality and how you speak to yourself fuels how you, the actions you take. And so I thought, I got thinking about, well, how do we speak to ourselves? How do we hold ourselves back? What is confidence? How, how would it be to have more confidence? And I thought, well, through my art, I'd really gained confidence. And it was all about making beautiful words beautiful. And so there was signed by Ange and Words on Wood. And I created this workshop called Opening Doors. And it was all about stepping into who you could be. And so I trundled off, you know, a couple of years later to India for my 40th birthday. And I went to the north of India and was just a few steps away from the Dalai Lama. It was amazing. And so I spoke to a couple of organisations because I, uh, about putting my workshops in place there. And I took my book of the things that I'd created and the idea of women being able to tell their story through a piece of art and to use like discarded pieces of, you know, whatever was around, like that we can, at the time, my idea was that, you know, I saw human transformation and transformation of objects as a parallel path. And so as we transformed an object, we transformed ourselves. And that meant that we didn't have to spend lots of money on buying things, but we used the ink that we could make and we used the colours that we could find in nature or in our clothing or whatever it is that we had or um, local powdered inks from around the place. If that meant finding a, a piece of wood that was something that inspired you, well, then they could use that. And I created a whole two-day workshop on really looking at, okay, so... What are, what are our pirates? What are those thoughts that hold us back? And then the next day was all about what are the new words we'd like to use? And then how would we put that on a piece of art that we created ourselves in, well, for me, it would have been in English, but whatever, it would be in Tibetan or Hindi or um, whatever the women's language was. And then my idea was to bring that back to France with the woman's story and sell it and return the, the money to, uh, to them. And at that time, things weren't going that well in my marriage. And so I decided that the, with three small children, it probably wasn't the best idea to try and move between India and France. And so I was telling other people about my ideas in France. And one of my girlfriends said, couldn't you do that for us? And like, again, a falling off perch moment. I was like, why does everyone, like, like who else has a problem with confidence? <laughs> like, I'm not imagining that anyone had a problem with confidence, you know. And so I started doing it that way. I just said, well, I'll just run too as a test. And the results were really quite fantastic. And so then I started like, well, putting them out there onto the market. Then one day, someone who came and, she, you know, she said that was an amazing um, workshop for her. And would I coach her? And I'm like, no, I'm not a coach. I'm, I'm only bringing in my experience of what I learned when I was young and all of these books that I'd read and what I knew was possible because I'd created possible for myself and all of the art that I have. So I was really reuniting all of the things together that I loved the most and putting that out into the world as an offering. And then she really insisted. And I said, well, if you don't call me a coach, 
I'll accompany you and we'll see how it works. She blitzed what she had set out to do. And that was when I thought, right, it's time to start developing this. And, and, the, and the rest again is history. So now was that the beginning of Queen of Possible? It was. That was the beginning. That was after opening doors and even opening doors continued. That was the beginning of Queen of Possible. And it was a conversation, which is what I do now, right? And she said, wow, you're the Queen of Possible. And I just thought that was so cool <laughs> that I kept it. Yeah, and it's been with me ever since. And, you know, as I was telling you before, I, about a year ago, I was thinking, oh, you know, that's a bit naff. You know, that sounds too, like, fluffy. And what does that even mean? And I'm, you know, working with these women, and I work with all women. And I, when I say all women, I work with all women who are a stand for leadership and women's leadership in the world. And I do work with executives. And I also work with women who are young and aspiring to be executives. And I, and I work with women who want more than anything to change the leadership paradigm. So it's not a, again, I, I, I don't like silos. I really, I, I, I like bringing women in together. And what's important to me is the mission that they have. That little inner voice again, that's not serious enough. You know, you don't sound professional. How powerful do you think you'll be with people? You know, all of, all of those beliefs and thoughts that are just weigh us down. And I thought, okay, well, maybe it's time to change that. And I have been moving into the Wild Spirit Leadership and I have my Wild Spirit Leadership collab. And that was an idea of also moving from the individual to the collective. So that, that's really important to make this more collaborative and collective. But when a couple of people wrote to me during the pandemic and went, oh my God, the Queen of Possible, that name, that's so inspiring. And I thought, I'm keeping it. <laughs> that's it. We're going with this. Because you know, anything I can do to inspire, I will. Anything, any conversation, any blog post, any written piece, if I can inspire any, any woman, any human, but because you know my driver is women, women's leadership. If I can inspire any woman, any woman to step into who she really is and to live that fully, that's what I live for. So Queen of Possible it is, and Wild Spirit Leadership. What are the various ways that you work with women? Well, one-to-one -one coaching, of course. So now I now I do now I do coach women, and I still don't like to say really I'm a coach because I find that so, in, in a way, it's really limiting. You know, I really help women step into their power. And it is through coaching methodology, but it's also through creativity and art and running sometimes and hiking and, and all sorts of ways. Yeah, so there's one-to-one -one coaching. There's the Wild Spirit Leadership Collab, which is um, specifically for women who do have a mission and really want to step into their leadership and they want to play at their next level. Like I, it is what Tara Moore, she's a great woman's coach she's calls it playing bigger and I, I love that but it's not playing bigger as in getting more and doing more it's like that inner expansion which creates an outer expansion so really being more of yourself and that sounds so like cliched at the moment because everyone says it but it's such a powerful and real important thing and so it's one-to-one -one, it's the wild spirit leadership and at the moment I've also Running, running some leadership programs, one with Millie Rasikwala and Daniel Kamanga, who's got this amazing mission to create a million leaders in Africa. And we had this conversation together. And when she said, I want to create a million leaders, I said, that's awesome. 500,000 need to be women. <laughs> and, uh, so 
from there have been these conversations with this, these other awesome, awesome people, these women who we've designed a course with. So there's a course for African women. And then how there's Women for Planetary Health with Nicole DePaula. There's a leadership program there. So, you know, there are all sorts of ways. I think I, I get creative. So I've got my two ways for the moment and really in the process of creating something with Kylie Stone, who you had on your podcast last time as well. So really looking at making more collaboration. But for the moment, just personally, there's one-to-one coaching or the Wild Spirit collab. How have you been able to connect with so many women globally? First of all, it's been a desire. So for anyone who's staying within their little circle, I would say, listen to your desire. And I know this will sound very hazy, but follow it. And so what that means is I have followed the most, one side is inconsequential, like seemingly like silly little things. And others have been like moments where I felt really scared and I've stepped in anyway. And so I followed leads without asking myself too many questions. A friend of mine said I should do this really great course in Cancun it was and it was quite a lot for my budget right at the time I was like oh my goodness and she said it's the best leadership training you'll ever get and this was in 2019 and I'd already been doing leadership training and she said it's 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 amazing so I I followed my friend's advice I'm also really admire her she's an amazing coach so I I signed up and I went to Cancun not thinking it was possible in the beginning and went there anyway And, you know, I met the most amazing people there. So I think there's an openness. There's an openness and a willingness because that was quite an expense. But when I didn't have any money, and goodness knows I've had moments when I really didn't have any, it's also been following the opening, actually allowing myself to talk to people when I felt like maybe I wasn't worthy or not at their level and really letting my commitment guide me. Like, what am I committed to? And so I met this fantastic woman who's become a friend of mine, her name's Alison, in Cancun on the last day in particular. And I met lots of amazing people, of which another coach who I've done ICF coaching training with, and she lives in Iceland. And now she's in France next weekend, and I'm going to drive up and see her. So it's just, it's, it's sort of being a yes, you know, it's stepping in and saying yes, and, and not letting myself get held back by the little thoughts of saying, who are you? And anyway, to go back to Alison, we had a a conversation in the waves on the last day of that course, just before we all got dragged and caught a plane home. And that conversation led me, she said, would you like to be part of another conversation? And without even thinking, I went, yeah, (laughs) it was about education. And so from there, just saying, yes, I met all these other people. And I think that's the same as, you know, when I was 19 and in New Zealand, actually I was 23, sorry, at 19, gone up, finished my study. And then at 23 is when I left again. I was starting out my career. I was on a normal early career salary. It wasn't like, you know, I could buy my first BMW or anything. And again, it was doing what I could to like, where do I want to go? If UNESCO is not working, how else can I get there? So have your mission and just allow yourself to follow the flow of life and keep saying yes. Like, like, you know, this, look at our conversation. That came from speaking with Kylie, who knew Alison. <laughs> and Kylie said, you need to meet Amy and Nancy. <laughs> it's like, okay, that sounds great. So being a yes. Yeah. And knowing what your commitment is. And not, not, not letting anyone talk you out of your commitment. 
speaking of commitment, we noticed that you have said before, there is no power in commitment to a compromise. So talk a little bit about that. That is a quote. I don't have the book with me. It's in a, and it's not in that book, I don't think, called Create Your Life as Art by Robert Fritz. But that, that particular quote, there's no commitment in compromise is something that I took from it. There's a whole quote, which is all about creativity and, and all the rest of it. His quote is, the life energy of the universe cannot be sustained in a commitment to a compromise. And that was when I really realized that if you accept a compromise, specifically, it's, it's not a commitment anymore. It's a, it's a just about, which means you're always just about there. You're not mobilizing all of your resources. You're not mobilizing all of your energy. And it's sort of like, it's like, it's a slippery slope back down. And I know as women, because I've, I've heard that from another friend, she said, you know, compromising is a good thing. And I said, this isn't about saying, I want all of the pie. You know, like there's only a certain amount of pie and I'm going to eat all of it. It's about, you know, and not caring about other people. So it's not that sort of, I am not committed to eating all of someone else's pie, for example. But I have a commitment to having women in 50% of leadership commission uh, positions worldwide, which means that every conversation I have leads towards that. And if it's like, oh, well, it doesn't really matter if we get to 25% or whatever, you know, we've, we've, there's a commitment for you. I know some organizations that are committed to having women in 25% of leadership positions, and they're at 17 and see, that's the power that goes into something that isn't a full-on commitment. It's sort of like sketchy, almost, just about. And there's no energy in it, no guts, no juice. And so if you keep compromising, then you keep settling and you let yourself down. I'll give you a, a, an example. I'm doing a detox at the moment. And I could say, well, what's one extra or one less? But then that becomes one extra, what, what's one, what, who cares if I have 20 grapes instead of 15? I mean, you know, I could say it like that or I could say, oh, just this once I'll have a biscuit. And it's not about making having a biscuit wrong, but it's about like, what is the energy you're putting into this and where else in your life are you settling for just about? That's actually nibbling at your resources, gnawing at your energy, shutting you down. And that's that slippery thinking, that slippery slope. And that's why to me it's so important is all of the energy is in the commitment, not in the compromise. It takes strength and I think it takes as well, when I say belief in your commitment, you know, something that touches your heart, that's it. It takes heart. You've got to have a reason for it. And, and if you've got some heart in it, then don't settle. That's, then, then you start also having that negative image of yourself that you never manage to really do anything properly or you never get it right. And that's when those doubts can start sneaking in. Whereas when you're fueled by commitment, oh my God, you can move mountains. You can end up in Paris from Auckland, New Zealand. <laughs> How the hell did I get here? <laughs> so, And when I say that as well, I think what's important to um, qualify is the end goal is important, the mission how I get there, it's not so much a compromise. It becomes a, game, it becomes a game of creativity. Like it's not focusing, I have to get there this way and there's no compromise. It's I have to get here. Now, what are all the fun ways that might make that happen? Because if this way doesn't work out, well, there's another way. And if that way doesn't work out, well, there's another way. And, and that's where it's like, it's not a compromise on the way to get there, but it's, this is my mission. <laughs> I'm going there. I love what's the fun way. Yeah. 
I think it's such a heavy thing sometimes to try and get to a goal. If you're not getting there, you get frustrated and then it gets hard. Yeah. So to explore it as fun. It's really interesting because we often hear detach from the outcome. Like have a commitment, but but detach from the outcome. And that's been a big learning for me because... It, it is hard otherwise. It becomes then another weight on your shoulders and a burden and somewhere, like you said, to get to. And I don't see my commitments that way. It's like if if it's not fun, I mean, life has so much potential and opportunity for fun. I mean, when I was in that, like I was talking about the um, those waves, we joked about this being our ocean office. I mean, seriously. And... I, I miss living by the beach, but I have a country office and we can choose to do things the hard way or the easy way and within whatever environment we're in. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I get that I'm in a privileged environment. You could say, yeah, well, what am I going to do if I'm in a favela or something? So I, I don't have a, because I haven't been to one, I don't have a, any idea for that. But I know that we always have a capacity. The human being has a capacity to find the best, to find the fun ways, to find something regenerative. And I think, you know, the patriarchal system that we're in is all about survival. And for me, fun is about thriving. And we forget the creative, healing, motivational, all-encompassing power of joy and what that can create for results. And I just wrote a newsletter yesterday about love as well. Because, I mean, when you bring love to something, it grows. And, and what you focus on expands, right? So the more love you bring, some, to, you bring to something, and I don't mean bad boundaries and dependency. I really mean heartfelt love. When you pour love into something, oh, my God, it can only be amazing. And then you can bring all the fun and the joy. Coming from commitment is what I like to call it. It doesn't have to be a slog. It, you don't get brownie points for suffering extra. That's the way I see it. And it's so important. And we can connect with that. All of us can connect with that. It doesn't depend on finances. It doesn't depend on situation. It doesn't depend on social status. It it, it depends on wanting to be more real and come back to connecting to what's true inside. Thanks for listening to the Passionistas Project podcast and our interview with Angela Philp. To join other wild spirit leaders to create the next level of your leadership and more deeply impact the world, starting with yourself, visit queenofpossible.com. Please visit thepassionistasproject.com to learn more about our podcast and subscription box filled with products made by women-owned businesses and female artisans to inspire you to follow your passions. Get a free mystery box with a one-year subscription using the code WINTERMYSTERY. And be sure to subscribe to the Passionistas Project podcast so you don't miss any of our upcoming inspiring guests. Until next time, stay well and stay passionate.